Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 134. This interview is with Jeffrey K. Rawls, VP of Marketing and Insights at Salesforce, as well as the author of the book Audience, Marketing the Age of Subscribers, Fans and Followers. In this podcast, we talk about digital transformation, how important it is to consider the broader audience of your brand, the challenges of creating a social strategy for brands that are part of a larger corporation, and what role the C-suite can be playing in digital transformation. Lots of great insights. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue podcast, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, your host and author of The Mindset. That's M-Y-N-D-S-E-T dot com, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes to the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. And so Jeff piped in from the States. The Jeff Rawls is uh, your friend Jay. My, he usually comes with some sort of wonderful intro, like the man of snacks or the, I don't know. Anyway, Jeff, tell us who you are, what you do, and what's your mindset? Sure. So uh, Jeff Roars, I'm Vice President of Marketing Insights for Salesforce and author of the book Audience Marketing in the Age of Subscribers, Fans, and Followers. And my mindset today is... Uh, uh, Cold. We uh, we hit a, a record low in Ohio here, where I'm based, last night of negative twelve degrees Fahrenheit, and uh, today it's going to be a balmy heat wave. I think we're going to hit thirty one degrees Fahrenheit. So Back to we're, zero. we're muddling through the, the winter here. Indeed. Well, so um, your your book, Audience, it's a great book because it really talks about you know how do you federate uh, your community. What 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 would you how do you describe the key key thoughts that have really been grasped by the people listening and reading your book? Well, the the, the number one thought is um, an idea is that proprietary audience development is now a core marketing responsibility. So, um, as the internet has taken hold over the last two decades, we've become managers of channels, right? We, we have email, and so we will do things to get email subscribers and squeeze ROI out of them. We have social channels, and we try and get fans and followers through Facebook and Twitter and other channels. What my epiphany was was that uh, we were not managing those holistically. These are all audiences. They are not mutually exclusive, so I can be a member of your email uh, subscriber base. I can be a fan. I can be a follower. But unless we we look at them in in terms of audience management, um, you're going to be doing things that can actually undermine your audience growth. Um, And unless you have that kind of cohesive approach to say, hey, I want to grow the audience size, engagement, and value, you're always going to be in a campaign mindset where the audience is kind of the punctuation to the sentence instead of kind of the subject. So I'll give you an example. I speak a lot of content marketing world and, and other content marketing events, and you hear all these people passionately talking about the content they're creating. But if you think about what content is without an audience, it's you know the proverbial tree falling in the forest that nobody's hearing. Okay. So another key part of the book is to try and get folks to think, anytime you're thinking content marketing, you better have the flip side of the coin audience development in mind, because the idea is to have your content be uh, a snowball rolling downhill to give a a weather appropriate reference right now, because the first piece of content should lead to a larger audience for the second piece of content to a larger audience for the third piece of content. And that's across channels that are relevant to your 
uh, your customer base, right? It's not the channels that you consume. It's the one that you're trying to market to. And so um, with most companies, email is going to be a foundational channel where you audience, uh, and then you layer in the other channels where it's going to be uh, meaningful from an ROI standpoint and from a service standpoint to your customers. So it's about distribution. In part. Um, I mean, it is audience definitely is that, right? Because why do we want to build these direct audiences? We want to reduce our dependency on paid media, not because we're going to get rid of paid media altogether, but because we want to be more efficient, um, efficient with our spend. Mm -hmm. We want to be more targeted with our spend. We don't want to necessarily have to market to an audience we've already acquired. Although there are some interesting things beyond distribution that having your own audiences can now do. And if you look at the world of social advertising and Facebook custom audiences, I now can go to Facebook, map my email subscribers against my fans, and when I identify those folks who are both fan and email subscriber, I can do reinforcing messages on the email I just sent out. And we've actually seen in the Salesforce Marketing Cloud, one retail client we had saw a boost of 22% response once you, you know, targeted advertising to your email subscribers in Facebook. So, yes, it's about reducing costs by being able to go direct, increasing speed to market. But the other thing that building audiences can do now for you is make your paid media, especially in social advertising, uh, more productive, more efficient, and more targeted. To what extent is it possible, and maybe Salesforce's solution allows for this, to, to segment between those people on an email list that are fans and those people that are not? And, and to that extent, then you would have different content that you can pu push out because mm -hmm. if they're already reading your blog, then don't put another blog post reminder in the newsletter and you can customize the kind of content you're providing in each channel. So that exists today. Our, our social.com team has a product called Active Audiences, which taps into the custom audience uh, segmentation capabilities of Facebook. Um, and you can do that kind of precision targeting today. Um, in addition to targeting the you know, folks who are email subscribers and fans who you may want to message again for reinforcing the message, you know, we're getting to the point where you're going to be able to push information on purchase behavior. So if you know, you know, this is an email subscriber who has purchased versus one who hasn't, you can alter the messaging that way. The other thing you can do are lookalike audiences. So you know the demographic makeup of your email subscribers who are Facebook fans. Let's take that demographic profile and put it over here in this geographic set. Let's say it's a geographic region. We're opening a new store. So we don't really have any fans. We don't really have any email subscribers in that region. Now you can do a lookalike audience in Facebook and target people very, very specifically, which reduces your cost, increases the response. And again, you're, you're being much more granular with your advertising instead of, you know, the old, you know, you know, do 100% and half of it doesn't work for you. So um, this is what got, got me really excited as I dug in on the book because originally I was, I was thinking I was just writing subscribers, fans, and followers of the book. We did a research series on this and, um, you know, looking at changing consumer values and relationships with brands. But once I realized it was this bigger story of audience, all of a sudden I began to see the, the interesting evolution of social advertising and Facebook leading that charge, but you've got Twitter out there, you've got Snapchat out there. This is something that is going to come to every brand. And if you're not building your own audience, you aren't going to have that kind of specific segmentation capability. Sure. It's very interesting, right? Because up until now, if you wanted to buy advertising, they would sell advertising to anybody. Mm -hmm. 
right? They just want to, you know, sell it, sell the attention, rent the attention, what have you. Now that segmentation is only available to the ones who are building proprietary audiences and can match them against each other. And then you have this notion of the relevance, the relevance index, and, and you know, they're going to push back and say, well, you're, you're actually not targeting the right people. <laughs> right. Well, and that, and that gets into something that I've been writing about. Um, I, I just wrote a, a contribution to uh, a, a book about putting the real in real-time marketing. Mm -hmm. So, it's interesting. A lot of the real-time marketing discussion has been in the, in the popular marketing press has really just been code for viral, right? If we go back to, right. you know, everybody wanting to go viral Mario. back in the day, blend tech, you know, will it blend and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And then you think about the, um, the Oreo tweet from the Super Bowl two years ago, sure. that was hailed as kind of this pinnacle of real-time marketing. It was opportunistic. It was extremely creative. But the only reason it was real time is because this event happened in a major event, and then the marketers had a piece of creative that could play off of that. That's really, I, I kind of call the snowflake on the mountain of real time marketing. The truth about real time marketing is it is layering in behavioral data, it is layering in uh, geographic data, it is layering in um, things that are happening in the culture to automate messaging and automate relevance so that you increase response. Mm -hmm. So that goes through social advertising. That goes through predictive analytics on your site. I know you are looking at these particular products. I have this history of what you've looked for before. Therefore, I'm going to serve up this particular piece of, of product because I think you're going to be interested. And then you've got a whole other layer of connected products and devices mm -hmm. that gets really interesting. I just saw a demo um, at our at our uh, annual sales kickoff where a client of ours called Automatic, which is a, essentially like a Fitbit for your, your automobile. Mm -hmm. um, you plug it into the diagnostic port mm -hmm. and, you know, you can, you know, take a look at gas mileage, all sorts of different things yeah. via the app. Well, you can use Automatic hook it up to if then, uh, yes, then if this, then that, right? And you can have a basically a, an automation that will then turn on Philips uh, Wi-Fi lighting in your house when you've pulled into your driveway, into, into your garage, and turned off your car. It'll turn on your lights. And so you think about these things from a real-time marketing standpoint. Mm -hmm. Now we know physical activities that happen in the real world, mm -hmm. and we can actually have either service outcomes or even marketing outcomes. And it gets, I mean, the creativity we're going to have to bring to bear on this is pretty exciting. It is. When I, I, I listen to you, I, I think, I, I wonder to what extent in the, in the world of Salesforce, this is all about big data. Is that like where the conversation is or is that you just sort of forget that idea and you're actually acting on it? So big data you know, is, is one of those uh, buzzwords that um, I think has served a really good purpose to focus attention on um, information that we're collecting um, and how it can be useful. But big data in and of itself uh, isn't necessarily useful, right? It's actionable data. And so in many ways, big data, I often say, is really about the smallest pieces of data that are meaningful when you put some sort of action to them. Mm -hmm. And so there, there are a couple of thoughts that come to mind there. You know, retailers are sitting on a, a, a mountain of data. 
the key for them now and in the future is how do we distill that down efficiently Mm-hmm. and get it out to the parts of our organization where it could matter. So I've been speaking to a number of retailers uh, lately who are looking at how do I really bridge the gap between the online and the offline experience mm-hmm. so that if you have done anything online, you walk into my store, I recognize you as an individual, and I've empowered my sales associate with information that's going to be helpful to you because they've got some history, they know some other other information. That's putting big data down into a small, actionable and kind of space. And to the individual. Exactly. And it, regardless of whether it's online or off, that's a huge, huge mission right now for many, many retailers. Mm-hmm. But there's another wave, and I think this is, the, this is the piece that's going to be coming into vogue now is kind of the buzz phrase, and that's really the data science piece of it. Um, that is being able to distill and look at trends. Um, that is beginning to distill data down so that you can automate more response mm-hmm. where you know you don't have to have the human intervention. The, the, the machine, if you will, is going to understand who this individual is, what's going to be of interest to them, and is going to be in a constant testing and optimiz- optimization kind of mentality. Um, and that means our job as marketers becomes really the creative idea of how to deploy this and automate messaging so that it truly does serve the customer. Because at the end of the day, it, it's not about big data, it's about that customer. It is about making sure they are, they are happy, they are satisfied, they become loyal. Um, you know, we refer to it as being a customer company, which sounds self-evident, but you and I both know there are a lot of companies out there that are shareholder companies, yeah, for sure. right? And the, we believe at Salesforce, the key is you've got to be a customer company. That's where you ultimately unlock the value in your organization that will benefit shareholders and other stakeholders. Mm-hmm. But the key is satisfy that customer. Look at how technology and data applies to them and constantly evolve. All right. So I hear you. And I, a couple of things pop out. The first is you, you said, uh, how can we r- remove the human or the human? Oh, not, not necessarily remove the human. Right. Supplement, right? right. Because we're empowering right. individuals in new ways. I firmly believe that human touch has got to be there. Yeah. And I also firmly believe that one of the biggest impediments we have to better unleashing technology in a way that serves our customers is that we haven't addressed the organizational changes right. that need to occur in order for that to happen. 100%. So, I, I mean, I'm going to get into that in a moment. But yeah. where I was going to go with it, and, and you know, this is sort of... In the world of what's your ROI of social, and and but I, the reason why I mention it is because we're talking about automation and mm-hmm. uh, and getting more efficiencies, and somehow the 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 challenge is you know really engagement comes from emotion and all these mm-hmm. other non terms. And so where I wanted to go with this was, to what extent, Jeff, do you feel it's possible to make a long term engagement with a brand that doesn't have a purpose? Oh, a great question. Um, I think it's very, I think it's very difficult. Um, I think that social media has shown a light on the fact that not every company has the DNA to be social. Not every company has the DNA to be humorous. Not every company has the DNA to be human. And so brand remains a critical asset and culture as a, a very strong part of that brand. Um, even in this era of mobile, social, data, technology, um, because ultimately that's what resonates with us emotionally as buyers and connects us. 
if and and that's why I'm excited to see some of these leading edge retailers try and deploy technology to make their people better. Yeah. Right? That that's where the value is to me and those companies you know in their values, right? Service, trust, um you know, making the customer the heart of what they do, those are probably all expressed right there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, if you think of some big box retailers who, you know, I won't name names, but we can all visualize the ones that, you know, we don't, we feel like a cog in the machine as opposed to a customer. As do the employees. Right. They're having a difficult time and they're, they're actually, you know, having to take a look at, you know, their vision and their values um, because, Technology is an, ab- an enabling tool. It's ultimately not going to change the essence of who you are. And so unless you look at that essence of who you are as a company and what role you serve, the technology is only going to take you, you know, so far to, to make the customer happy. Um, so, you know, you see a lot of brands. Um, another interesting trend in this regard, and you, I'll use Philips as an example again, mm-hmm. Philips manufactures, you know, diversified manufacturer, uh, medical equipment, light bulbs, all that kind of stuff. If you look at what they're doing, they're realizing that it's not enough for them to sell the bulb. They've now got to provide service around it. They have, you know, these LED light bulbs that are programmable via the web. And they've got light bulbs that will, you know, as we mentioned in the automatic example, you can connect up and turn on with certain activities. But, you know, you think about that light bulb, it has an app. There's now a service opportunity there. There's now a more personal, intimate relationship with Philips than you ever had before. It used to be my relationship with Philips was over once I removed the bulb from the package and I put it in. Well, actually, now it, was even, it was if it were anything, it was probably with the hardware store where you used to purchase it. Yeah. The guy, hey, Jeff, how are you doing? Oh, I need another light bulb. That mm-hmm. was your brand experience. Yeah, yeah. And all oh, these ones are cheaper or these, you know. That's it. These so, last longer. Um, so, all right, so there's, uh, w- where I go with this is that we have the mm-hmm. brand, and of course we have brands as part of a corporation. Mm-hmm. And so when you're dealing with clients, uh, sometimes you have to deal at the corporate level, sometimes you have to deal at the brand level. And, and in, the, in the realm of gaining brands with differentiable feelings, engagement and emotion, yet still kowtowing to a corporate value system, mm-hmm. I was wondering what kind of insights you might have as to how to try to drive brands within a larger corporation where whether it's a holding company that doesn't have a commercial name or right. it's a commercial and corporate name let's say apple as opposed mm-hmm. to a Procter and gamble do you right. what kind of experiences do you have there in trying to drive engagement for the brands in the corporate environment well if you if you look at those that have strong sub brands, usually what you have is you know a, the most successful ones have a have a passion for the product right They can subscribe to the corporate values, but ultimately there are values at that brand level that are expressed and then executed through marketing and sales um, Some of those brands you know I think of like a, a Procter and Gamble or you know some folks in the CPG uh, industry um, do well by, you know, having personality, character, mm-hmm. you know, things that, that consumers can kind of latch on to that kind of are, stories. you know, stories or, you know, they're anthropomorphic characters or what have you that, that emotionalize it a little bit more. If you then compare that to, say, you know, an Apple, Apple has this overarching sense of quality, of innovation, um, you know, of service, 
uh, at the at the you know at the Apple stores, um, and it's been interesting because Apple is often touted as a social company, but they are not very social online at all. No, they're Nor the way their brand is social is through their fans. That's it. Right, right. They're the ones who express it. So I think you know the, the companies where the corporate structure is trying to impose regimentation. I think is limiting the the potential of those subsidiary brands. Mm -hmm. Subsidiary brands, in my mind, are opportunities for exploration. I mean, it's it's akin to the United States of America, this grand experiment in democracy, right? Our government, yes, we have a federal government, but we have this individual collection of 50 states and a number of territories. Within those states, they have states' rights, and they can experiment with things. And we're seeing that right now on a broad scale in America with you know legalization of marijuana in some states, mm -hmm. where others it is still illegal. But that's the grand experiment. Mm -hmm. If you now think about that in a brand structure in a large diversified company, in theory, that's the kind of opportunity for risk and testing that you should have out there. And, um, and you do see this with some brands where they'll have some brands kind of push the limit, and they might have some grand success that then they pull back and they bring into the corporate structure. Um, while it's one brand, I, uh, an example that comes to mind is Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola is well known for doing really innovative things in their marketing. You know, they're selling flavored water. They're actually selling the syrup, right, mm -hmm. because they've got the bottlers all around the world. Well, they do a lot of international types of campaigns that never see the light of day in the UK or in France or in the US. One of them was two years ago in Australia, they started testing out putting people's names on Coke right, cans, I saw that. right? Yeah, yeah. And I was talking about this a couple of years ago and saying, what a great campaign because you know they had a digital billboard, you could text in and see your name in lights. It really turned their customers into stars, into you know, the celebration of the customer. They took that, and I don't know if you had it in the UK. Yeah. We just had it this summer in the US and in Canada. And the, the sales figures are in. It, it's the first time in 10 years Coke grew their sales. And if you look on the web and you search for uh, Coca-Cola nativity scene, you will see that people created a nativity scene with Jesus and Mary and Angel. And people did funny things with the cans. They proposed. They announced their... They, they were pregnant. It personalized it. Coca-Cola embraced uh, what, in fact, they are. What Joe Polizzi at the Content Marketing Institute says is the biggest media company in the world because more people interact with that can of Coke or that bottle of Coke on a daily basis than any other form of media. And they personalized it and they brought it home. So that's an example where here out in Australia they tested mm -hmm. It succeeded, and now you bring it into the hole, and you can you can go large. And it actually, I think, added a lot to their brand and their culture. Right, that we we truly are about the fan. We truly are about sharing happiness. It, it fed into all of those stories. Well, and the, and if you take the case of Coca Cola, and if you go with Apple, I would argue both of them have a mission that drives people. So we want to make the world a better place, and we want to make people happy. Right, coconut mm -hmm. smile. So these are grander missions that yes. can can quickly galvanize a, a human emotion, a passion. 
what I'm thinking about when you said, you know, you can make some experiment with some brand and bring in the success into the home, I'm going to think of Ben and Jerry's for Unilever, but when mm-hmm. you bring, well, and, or Dove, but when you bring, we bring that back into the other ones, you quickly find out that the reasons for success are hard to reproduce because they can either be the actual values of the brand, mm-hmm. that kind of human connection stuff, or the actual leader of that brand, that the MD of that subsection, who eats, breathes, and you know is is uh, Cherry Garcia, yeah, and and as opposed to a commercial or I would say an executive, that is you know more of a, a mercenary executive, or a brand that doesn't have that kind of fluster. Of course, it has values of innovation or other things, but doesn't connect. I and and I think that will always be the case. There will always be, you know, exceptions that kind of prove the rule. But I think in those companies, it probably, it may, it may take years, but I bet you that the success of those types of campaigns within larger diversified companies gets them thinking differently about, mm. oh, well, wait a second, we mm. can connect and we can uh, create a movement here. Um, we have a, an awfully large soapbox in some cases, literally a soapbox, um, that we can aspire to be more than just this this brand they buy on the shelf. Mm. And that is a huge challenge right now for CPG uh, companies because they, you know, they often go to market and don't own the sale relationship. Yeah, right. So now they're trying to figure out how do we truly do customer relationship management mm-hmm. in a situation where we don't necessarily own the customer, we don't have the direct relationship. And that's why you're seeing so many companies transform their products from just being something that you install once to something you install but has an app mm-hmm. or you have a relationship. Now, I'm not saying every brand is going to be able to do that, nor should every brand. There are you know millions of brands, and, and, and there are probably hundreds in my house that I don't really want a relationship with. Right. I just I use them. They're, you know, they're, they're disposable. But the companies who are seeking to get that extra set of value um, are certainly looking at how do we how do we serve our customers better? And if you um, if I, I don't know if, if the like a girl campaign is something that has uh, uh, hit the UK, but um, uh, Procter and Gamble has a campaign a hashtag oh, yeah, yeah, is yeah, like, yeah. A like a girl. I, I've seen that, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and it is it's as as a father of a ten year old girl, it's just it, it gets me emotional even totally. thinking about it mm-hmm. because the campaign shows you. All of these adults, men and women, and they say, oh, throw like a girl, yeah. you know, dance like a girl, scream like a girl. And they're all these kind of humorous, derogatory kind of things culturally we accept. Mm-hmm. Then they ask kids who are, you know, 13 and under. And everything they do like a girl is strong and mm-hmm. strident and, and motivational. Yeah. And Procter & Gamble used that for, you know, one of their brands and has, you know, set off a movement where you've got parents and you've got you know, educators, you've got people thinking about that. Mm. That That is a, an incredible opportunity and, and an incredibly um, powerful message that then connects back to say, you know what, brands can do more than just sell the product. They can truly move the culture in positive ways. They just have to challenge themselves to do that. Mm. I love it. So, uh, Jeff, uh, there's a, another buzz term where some of your friends, like I do, we talk about digital transformation. Do you believe in digital transformation? And if so, how do you do it? Wow, that's uh, that's probably like, what, three podcasts? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
digital transformation to me is really um, really a concept that you're trying to put in in front of a uh, it seems in some ways more like an agency side kind of conversation when you're dealing because I was president of an agency here in Cleveland and um, I get in front of clients you know this was 10 years ago and they're spending $250,000 on a print ad and I just want them to throw me 50,000 to do this really innovative campaign that I know will get them a hundred times more results. Mm -hmm. So you're at that point in time, you were in an education mode. You were just trying to get crumbs off the table. Now digital is so um, immersive in our culture with, you know, the majority of people having smartphones in their hands uh, here in the States. I don't know if this is true in the UK, Research shows that you know over seventy percent of people are watching television with mobile devices, either you know smartphone or tablet or uh, laptop in hand. And I think that that idea of digital transformation is to switch the mindset uh, of the brand of the marketer to be thinking: Look, how do we make our marketing more measurable, more connected, more immediate, more real time with the consumer? The truth of the matter is, though that the lines between traditional and digital are really blurring. One need only look at, you know, uh, digital out of home advertising, uh, location-based and beacon, you know, based um, advertising and, and um, messaging on, on mobile devices to understand that digital transformation is really a stepping stone mm -hmm. to the new reality. I mean, it's just a phrase to get people who don't, I think, fully understand how it all connects and how many different ways you can touch the consumer along their journey now, both in home and out of home. Um, and so for me, those words don't really pass my lips too much because I live in the digital now mm -hmm. where I don't think of it as a this or that. I just think of it as this new collective whole that we're dealing with. Yeah. And our job is ultimately to, uh, you know, help that customer along their journey from prospect to actually being a purchase, purchasing customer to being hopefully a very loyal advocate out there. So if I interpret then, you, you don't feel like evangelizing is, is really still part of your remit at this point. Maybe it's the Salesforce client. It depends, more it depends on the audience. So from a, from a Salesforce perspective, it's, it's been interesting. For those folks who don't know, I, I'd worked for Exact Target and we were acquired about sure. 18 months ago by Salesforce. And we are now uh, part of the Salesforce marketing cloud, you know, mm -hmm. suite of products, Exact Target, Buddy Media, Radiant, Six, all brought together. And it's been interesting because I've gotten immersed in the Salesforce culture and understanding, wow, this, this is a company that truly built an entire industry, you know, cloud-based software, right? Number one, so, number one voted company for employees or something. I saw that a couple days yeah, ago. Uh, I think it's a uh, uh, most admired uh, software company, number one CRM, a lot of, a lot of awards. And, um, I think four years running most innovative company, uh, with, I think it's fortune. It might be Forbes. Um, <laughs> one of the, one know, of those F words. <laughs> yeah. One of those F words. Um, but what's fascinating to me is Salesforce was in an education mode when it started, right? Cause it was trying to get people to understand, look, you don't have to install, hardware and software and be dependent on these you know cd-roms and dvds to bring software to you mm -hmm. if we move it to this multi-tenancy cloud where we all share the infrastructure we can update that software delivered to you throughout the year and everybody is on the same version 
that is so in, kind of implicit in our thinking today, especially in younger generations. They don't even question that. Mm -hmm. But that, that still was a, a huge question back in the day. So now, you know, to your question about digital transformation, um, we talk a lot more about innovation. We talk about a lot more about actionable intelligence uh, because now our clients who are freed from worrying about installing software, installing hardware, and having bodies just to monitor servers, mm -hmm. those people have been freed up to say, how do we apply this technology? Mm -hmm. How do we put this into action? And so you get things like, uh, again, to cite Philips, but in their healthcare side of the business, they've got MRI, MRI machines that have our SOS button from our service cloud built into them. So if there's a problem, you push that button, and a rep comes up to help you troubleshoot whatever is wrong with this piece of equipment so that you can get the scan done. They built service into the machine, mm -hmm. and that's the kind of creativity that is brought to bear when you don't have to worry about the hardware and the software. You're just thinking about the higher-level applications. Mm -hmm. And that's not just true in marketing. That's true across sales and service and the platform, and it... It's, it's a really exciting time to be in that ecosystem because I have long espoused the virtues of Peppers and Rogers and the one-to-one -one future that they wrote about 21, 22 years sure. ago. We now live in the one-to-one -one present. Mm -hmm. The things people were dreaming about, dreaming about 20 years ago exist now, mm -hmm. and we have the tools to do it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I talk about when I, you know, again, to get your question about you know, evangelizing, mm -hmm. I talk about the new creative tools. Mm -hmm. As marketers, we think, oh, okay, right brain, right? The great creative idea, the thing that will go win me a con lion. However, the tools in our, in our toolbox now are also mobile because of so many people having mobile devices. Mm -hmm. They are social. Mm -hmm. You know, 75% of the population is sharing things socially. Connected devices. There's something like 50 billion connected devices in the next few years. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and that big data piece, right? All of this incredible data at our fingertips, if only we can distill it down to what's meaningful and useful. So as marketers and, and, and just business people, when we come to the table to brainstorm, we need to have all of those things in play in order to take full advantage. That's what I'm evangelizing, mm. is make sure your brainstorm is big enough to encompass the technology, the data, the mobility, and the social nature of consumers today. And when you do that, these really cool strange connections begin to come out that you never would have thought of, like, you know, the light bulb that you can put on disco mode from your phone uh, so it greets you when you come home. In fact, I, you know, just listening, I remember I, I actually, I, po I did a, uh, a post on Exact Target, and I refer to it as the digital mountain, because when you actually have to have that big a brainstorm, it can become, it can look like an enormous mountain of things to have to overcome and they explode my mind because, you know, I need to get in the sales for tomorrow. And that, that that's, anyway, I, I love that story. When I, one of the things you wrote about recently was you should be social, not do social. Mm -hmm. So, and, and where I, last question for you, Jeff, is this notion of being social. To what extent do the C-suite and the CEO in particular need to be social and on social? I believe it depends on their personality. So there are some CEOs, uh, Sir Richard Branson comes to mind, who just natively took to Twitter, took to social channels, and likes being there because uh, they're, they're extroverts. You know, they're folks where that environment is very um, intuitive. Uh, and 
they are also masters of the spoken word, the turn of the phrase. And so uh, the PR team isn't you know, too, too worried about having them out. There are other C-suite members, CEOs, who are more introverted. Mm-hmm. And, a lot um, more. Well, a lot of them are. And for them, I think that becomes an opportunity for the content and the social teams to take a more journalistic approach to getting them into kind of the social web with their ideas. They may never be the person who is, you know, kind of tweeting and responding. That's just not in their DNA. However, the organization can get their ideas and their vision out in other ways and then have people support that socially who are more extroverted, more connected, more, you know, wanting to um, uh, address folks in that medium. Um, So, you know, it always bothered me a few years ago when social was on the rise where everybody was saying, oh, your CEO should be, you know, tweeting and, and doing all this. I'm like, you know, you know CEOs have a, a few bigger things to, to fish to fry. Right. right? Except and if it's not in their DNA, they, sh- they shouldn't force themselves to do I, it. You're so right. I, I guess, the you know, sort of the raw material which you have to play. At the same time, if you want to create a social business, or at least to have social as part of your fabric, yes. and sharing, you know, and even an introvert can share. So yes. I, I think that there are ways for less bombast, you know, less uh, extravagant, extraver- extroverted Bransons of the world to find ways to still model the behavior that's going to work. And I think that's a, a, that's a harder thing to find. But like you say, you know, bring in the journalistic approach, but maybe they're, they're, they still need to model the behavior and that, that they can drill down and, and represent what they need to, to do. Well, Nick, and, and what I think that that statement gets to is the fact that marketing is service and service is marketing now because of social. So you, you're at a C level, the organization has to be conveying down responsiveness, respect, customer at the center of everything you do. And from that flows then, uh, I think behaviors in the organization that are very social are, are very serving um, and, and, and that's why I always, I always kind of bristle when I hear, you know, oh, we got to be more social. No, we don't. We have to be better customer servants. Mm-hmm. We have to be more uh, respectful, more uh, anticipatory of their needs. Social is just a, a series of channels through which you execute that customer service, that mindfulness, mm-hmm. that attentiveness. Um, and so, you know, again, it's it's interesting, and, and Jay and I probably should get into a conversation on this with social pros. Is I think I think we've evolved beyond the point where you know thinking that social is a destination into itself. Sure, it is a component part of a very healthy way of putting the customer front and center and serving their needs, so that there's mutual benefit and you grow as a company around that incredibly a static customer because you've just knocked it out of the park for them, served their needs, gotten them the right product at the right time. Well, as a loyal listener to the Social Pros, I'll look forward to that one. Uh, Jeff, it's been great having you on. Uh, give us uh, what would be the best way for someone to follow you. What's your preferred route or connection? Sure. So uh, on Twitter, at JK Roars. Uh, so J-K-R-O-H-R-S. And uh, also, if folks are interested in learning about the book, you can check that out um, at Audience Pro. Dot com, and uh, hopefully folks will be able to see me on the Salesforce World Tour as we go around the globe. 
um, I'm getting out of this cold weather and I'm heading down under uh, in about Excellent. a week. Well, so uh, hopefully I'll, I'll meet some of your uh, your viewers, your listeners uh, out and about. Excellent, Jeff. Thanks for coming on the show. Have a great and stay warm. Thank you, sir.
how much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.